You are listening to the Logos broadcast with Fergus James Murphy. Good evening and welcome to the very first live edition of the Logos broadcast. My pen name is Fergus James Murphy. I'm in South Carolina right now, and I'm joined by one Irish Jesuit priest and a layman from Mobile, Alabama. And expecting, we're expecting another Irish Jesuit priest uh, to come later on. Father Jim Corkery is a professor of theology at the Pontifical Gregorian University in Rome. And Graham Canton, how would you describe yourself? Uh, just another layman. Okay. <laughs> Try best. I, I think you're more than that. But anyway, um, thank you both for doing this. It was both at, at very short notice, uh, particularly you, Father Corker. Um, so thanks for that. You're in Italy. Is that correct? Yes. Okay. I'm in locked down Rome. Okay. Well, what a place to be um, at this time. Well, I, I want to go straight to, to something that I've mentioned to the two of you, and that's Cardinal Supic, or Cardinal Kupic. I don't know exactly how you pronounce his name, but uh, he's the Archbishop of Chicago. And I want to quickly ask you, uh, Father Corkery, what do you know about this Cardinal? Um, a certain amount. He's close to Pope Francis. Uh, I think they've worked together quite well. Um, isn't he one of his key advisors, one of the nine? I believe so. Um, he's, also, he's, of, he's up there anyway. Yes, and he's sympathetic to the, the stress on the poor, on the forgotten ones, the people at the margins. He has a strong sense of social justice, uh, as Pope Francis has too. Uh, he, I think he was once in Chicago in charge of the seminary. Uh, he's been the bishop for a few years, but not very long, and a cardinal also fairly recently. Uh, he's known to have creative ideas across a, a range of areas. Uh, because you told me I'd be talking about him this evening, I looked him up a bit in the space of time that there was. Right. And I find that he has spoken in these recent days about prayer, about uh, the need for us to look at how we live together and to live in greater solidarity also after these events are over. Uh, he has tried to reach out to the other uh, Christian communities in particular in Chicago, working with them so that they came together to pray together. So he's ecumenical, he's interested in social justice, he's spiritual, he's clearly intelligent, educated, mm -hmm. engaged on important fronts, and of course running a huge diocese. Now that's where I'm weak. I've never been to Chicago, to O'Hare, yes, but okay. I never got out of the plane. But um, that's a big job too that he has. You haven't been on the ground, as John Burton used to say, or she used to be parodied uh, by Afray Match a few years ago. Graham, uh, you sent me a Skype message a few days ago, and it was of an article from LifeSite News, uh, and it related to Cardinal Supic, and that's really, I wouldn't know who he was otherwise. So. Can you tell me a little bit about what happened there and why did that, uh, why did you feel the need to, to bring that to my attention? Um, besides just wanting to like try my best to keep you up to date um, regarding what's going on in the life of the church, because this is an unscented time and that's the buzzword, <clears throat> excuse me. And so it's important to study the dynamics, you know, of a prince of the church and how he reacts to an unprecedented time. Uh, so I thought it was important, especially because 
we have a lot of very curious statements coming out from cardinals or princes of the church. And this was a curious statement, and I thought that you would benefit from studying it because it's what we would call um, offensive to pious ears. Uh, Cardinal Kupich, let me pull up his statement so I can read it verbatim. He said, quote, God doesn't allow us to have a religion into a magic formula where we say a prayer and think things are going the way we have to take responsibility for our actions and we have to make sure we keep each other safe. Quote, religion is not magic where we just say prayers and think things are going to change. Now, <clears throat> this is where this idea of offensive to pious ears is in. What he said isn't necessarily an act. That's true that prayer is not magic and we should not engage in superstition. And we shouldn't use prayer as a scapegoat to act irresponsibly in public and then say, oh, well, I'm praying. So this will all be fine. So this isn't an excuse to act irresponsibly. That's not what prayer is. However, it is offensive to pious ears because we recognize that prayer is, in fact, a serious, a serious way to uh, change things in the spiritual world as well as the temporal realm, mm. which we see all throughout scripture. And so this is, it's curious. I mean, he, he was correct in what he said, but I, I think given his, his, his past record, um, which includes lots of things that are not necessarily pious, uh, sound for pious ears, it's curious and it begs the question, why even say such a thing if we know that this is the case? And who exactly is he addressing? So Father Corkery, uh, I don't know, would you say that you yourself have pious ears, but do you take issue with, I, I, I don't get the sense that you do, uh, that you do take issue with these kind of comments. And can you tell me a little bit about how you would interpret the remarks? Well, I, after I talked with you today, I looked to see, and of course I found the remark. And if you take it out of the paragraph and out of the paragraphs in which it occurs, well, then you could say, oh, what does that mean? You have to ask more questions about it. Mm. But if you see it in the context, the things I discovered today, uh, about him ringing the bells in the church at different times each of, of the day to honor those who are working with the sick, those who are sick, uh, those who are distanced from them at this time. Uh, when I see that he also recently quoted the gospel of Jesus healing the blind man and referred to the fact that Jesus did it in a tender way, giving him back his sight gradually, touching him, his eyes, uh, and then he said, this shows us that the Lord approaches us in our pain. Well, when you read that and you read about social responsibility as well, after the virus lets us go out again, then you can't say that he's saying that prayer makes no difference if somebody has the COVID virus. Mm -hmm. If the Lord approaches us in our pain, in our need, in our sickness, Clearly, it's a both and here rather than an either or. I'm not saying this because I'm a professor at a pontifical university and I have to defend a cardinal. You know, if a cardinal said something that I thought wasn't defensible, yeah. I'd tell you diplomatically that I thought that. But I think this one is not one uh, that one need get too alarmed about in the context or rather the contexts in which he yeah. has written about it. I think you you I I like what you're saying. It is not it is definitely reconcilable in a certain sense. But this website, um, justifiably or not, has chosen to focus on uh, this quote 
and and to highlight it in a clearly uh, negative way. So, um, Graham, do you mind talking about why certain uh, parts of the church or certain people within the church might have concerns uh, about his past record? Because I don't think, uh, as I said, I don't think these comments would be as relevant uh, if they if they didn't have a, a previous view about this man. Does that make sense? That makes sense. So, well, I mean, just you're wanting to know the context of which I speak that makes this a little more alarming than it would be otherwise. Exactly. That Well, alarming okay. to you, exactly. Yeah, alarming to, to myself and a few others. Yeah. So he's, he's made a, a few statements in the past that uh, are not necessarily incorrect. Once again, this is whole, the whole offensive to pious ears thing. Theological censure is the more formal way in which we would we would apply uh, offensive to pious ears reference. But um, let's see, I've got a few of the statements here. <clears throat> um, right. So here is an interesting one. This one is an opinionated quote. I don't. It could go either way. I'm not going to make an opinion on it, uh, but I will make a theological analysis. In an interview with Catholic News Agency in June 2019, Colonel Kupich defended his stance on allowing pro-abortion politicians to receive communion. He stated that it would be quote Kelter to impose sanctions because it would, quote, not change anybody's mind. And that quote is once again from that excerpt from LifeSite News. And this is curious for one particular reason, and that is that denying Holy Communion, and the key word here is communion, right? People say Holy Communion a lot, runs off the tongue. People don't really think about the C word, which is communion. Denying communion to what Pope St. Pius X calls members of the church or faithful who are in mortal sin um, is an act of charity. It's an act of unadulterated charity because as we see in the book of Corinthians, specifically 1 Corinthians 11.27, we see, therefore, whosoever shall eat this bread or drink the chalice of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. Now, by being a pro-abortion politician, what you're doing is you're effectively cutting yourself off from this communion of doctrine, this communion of beliefs of the church, which believes in the sanctity of the unborn. And so by participating in the Eucharist in communion in this unworthy manner, you are doing exactly what's written here. You are becoming guilty of the body and blood of the Lord, and that can damn you to hell. And as we see in other places in sacred scripture, we should not give to dogs what is holy. That's a really kind of extreme way oh. to basically say, sorry, yeah, no, I'll let you finish that point quickly. Yeah, to, to, it's an extreme way. It's an extreme way of saying that we should, we should be charitable to people if we know that they are unworthy. Now, there's no way to actually judge someone's conscience unless you have sure ways of knowing that this person you know, has a stained conscience. And this is why priests can't just deny people communion whether they want to or not. Mm -hmm. But the difference is if you're a pro-abortion politician, you're putting it in writing, hey, I disagree with the church on a fundamental issue. Mm. I believe in the murder of the unborn. And whether they think it's the murder of the unborn or not, the church recognizes that they're publicly supporting this policy. And they know that the church believes otherwise, yet they continue to support this policy. So Father Corky, do you mind me asking, how would you uh, respond to a dilemma like that? Uh, or maybe not personally, but, but how do you think it would be appropriate for someone like 
a cardinal to to speak on such matters. Would you would you share Graham's uh, adherence to the strict rules? I, I don't use strict because that has connotations, but do, you know what I mean. The rules around uh, Holy Communion. Well, this is a quite different area to the one in which it is. I know. Uh, yeah. We entered, you know, I mean, abortion is a very serious matter and it's certainly something about what the church has spoken pretty clearly. Now, a pro-abortion politician, I wasn't sure. Again, we get one quote. I don't know why Cardinal Supic said this, in what context, to what person, under what circumstances. And I'm trained to look at things a bit more broadly than take the bite line. But what I think is, uh, what is a pro-abortion politician? Is it a politician who actively promotes abortion, who says there should be abortion? Or is it a politician who is a member of a party that has a certain policy on the permissibility of abortion, the certain conditions for a period of the time of the fetus's life? Like I would see a difference between a pro-abortion person and a person who was a member of a party, a political party, which uh, he or she doesn't write everything that the political party puts into their policy and so on. And they don't want to be, I don't want to get into American politics here, I'd be out of my depth, but they don't want to be in the other party. Yes. They have no history of being in the other party. They might even be unhappy that their party uh, has that stance on abortion. But then it also, there's another point that has to be made. It seems, if what I've read is correct, that the party that permits uh, abortion or sees it as up to a certain age and under certain conditions permissible under the law of the land, apparently when that party is in government, the rate of abortion goes down because it takes better care of life um, and of precarious pregnancies and of, uh, of such matters. Now, I'm not trying to muddy the waters here. I'm saying that anybody who is a headstrong, gung-ho, public advocate of abortion without nuance, but is that the same as saying- a, Well, let's use that, that example politician then. who's pro-abortion, but you can't say that of every Democrat, to put it bluntly. No, but let's imagine a, a politician who is adamantly advocating for abortion, as, as you say. Um, can we just deal with those people and, and how, how should we respond or how should you, I suppose, you're, you're the priest, you know, or how should the church uh, respond to those people specifically with communion? I know, again, I, I'm, I know I'm pushing you here because we didn't initially talk about this before the interview, but um, if you have something to say on that, I, I'd love to hear it. Well, I, I'll tell you, this might be wrong and maybe my head will go on the top for this. Anybody who approaches me to receive communion, I will not refuse him or her. Mm. If I knew you robbed a bank this evening and I was saying the eight o'clock mass tomorrow morning and you appeared for communion, I would give you communion. Mm. What would I be assuming about you? That you had done some reflection before you came to communion, that you, you, you were sincere in your request for it, that you, uh, who knows? I can't enter into the interior yeah. of your... So I would refuse communion to nobody if I had a chance to talk to a person who was a pretty strong public advocate of something like abortion. 
I would give him in no uncertain terms my opinion that I don't see he has how he squares that with with um, aspects yeah. of his Christian faith. But you know, I'd be careful to to deny the sacrament to anybody because when they approach you, you don't quite know what state they're in. And is it for me to decide what that is? Well, I think you've you've highlighted a very um, you've you've touched on something very important, and and that is in good conscience. And this is something that I had no real understanding of uh, about three months ago, <laughs> uh, and I still have a limited understanding. But Graham informed me uh, that not having been to confession in a couple of years, uh, I shouldn't be receiving communion. Uh, it's just a, a shouldn't be done, and. And so this brings us to uh, a difficult situation. Uh, by the way, I, I was unaware of that. I just think that's worth pointing out. I, I, I didn't understand that, that part of doctrine. Well, then, then you weren't excluded from going. You, if, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Fair enough. Well, well, let's talk about confession in, during the coronavirus because uh, I've heard two views uh, here. One from a priest in South Carolina uh, who doesn't believe that drive-through confessions are appropriate. And, and also the Bishop of Charleston, I don't think it's an archbishop, uh, has forbidden it. Now, Graham and I uh, are based in Mobile during the academic year. And there's a priest there, a Polish priest, who uh, sent us emails saying um, that I will be providing drive-through confessions uh, at this time in this place. So. Again, to me, a lot of this stuff is very new. The fact that there is any difference um, between different people in the church. And, and so this is something new to me. Could you please tell me, uh, Graham, what do you think about the two sides? Which, which side do you think is right? Because listening to you talking, it would sound like you are a very, um, you, you pay attention to the rules of the church and you follow them, and, or at least you try to follow them more than most people. Do you think that that extends to communion? Should communion only be provided to people at the right place in, in the right setting? Or considering the circumstances, should we make allowances and, and adapt and do things like the drive-through? Uh, I think, yes, I think adaptations um, are history of the church. Um, I think one very interesting example is when Jesuit missionaries went into Japan in the 1600s, there were isolated faithful and these people did not have access to churches these people did not have access to traditional confessionals and traditional confessionals weren't exactly completely in place in the 1600s so let's keep that in mind and so what you had were just confessions on the spot i don't know if you guys are familiar with this movie called silence mm. uh, and it's about the jesuit missionaries who went into japan to find uh, one of their professors who supposedly apostatized, and they went to Japan to see if he was still there and if he had, in fact, apostatized. There are no confessionals the entire time, and these Japanese people are making confessions. So we think that's interesting is that sanctioned. Look at canon law. That's the go-to. Canon number 604 says that the proper place to hear the sacramental confession is a oratory. Okay. Sections two and three, the conference of bishops norms regarding the confessional and to take care that there is always a confessional with a fixed gate, great, sorry, between the penitent and the confessor. 
However, section three says confessions are not to be heard outside of a confessional without just cause. There's um, a semantic debate to be had here because the priest that made this statement against drive-through confessions said that drive-in confessions kind of takes away from the dignity of the sacrament itself. Graham, so to can I interrupt you? I know that you're at mid-flow, but the sound is very poor. So could you try taking off those earphones? Uh, and I don't know if you're speaking through the earphones. Is, is there- yeah, let, me just, let me just switch to mine. You were talking about a priest uh, who made a, 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 a statement. I know I completely interrupt you, but I do want the sound to be as, as good as it can. How is this? That's much better, yeah, much better. Okay, so there's a semantic debate to be had here. We have to ask ourselves, what is dignity as understood by either ecclesiastical authorities or by secular authorities? And what exactly makes a sacrament dignified? Um, what do you think about that? What do I think about? What, what, do you think, what do you think about what makes a sacrament dignified and what makes, what is dignity as understood by the church? Okay, uh, I would say done in a respectful way. That's good. What do you think, Father? Uh, I think he did well there. I mean, a sacrament is a very important encounter. It always involves God and one other person or more than one other person. There should be great respect between those involved. And if there is that, I think it would be adequately dignified. I would have to say that, you know, some of the things you speak about in regard to how confessions are meant to be heard in the code of canon law and so on. We also learned, I learned when I was studying theology before becoming a priest about pastoral availability about pastoral flexibility. I can tell you 35 years later that some of the perhaps most touching, salvifically significant, consoling uh, confessions that I have heard have been in circumstances which I'm afraid did not meet those criteria. There wasn't a confession box, there wasn't a grill, and there wasn't a church but somebody was speaking to a priest for perhaps the first time in 20 years. And during the course of the conversation, because the conversation was going well and there was dignity and respect, decided that they would like to go to confession. So there and then they went. I was stopped one day in the street here in Rome by a priest. He saw me coming from the university and knew who I was. And he asked me there and then to hear his confession. I certainly did. If you don't take the moment, the person might not be able to get up the courage or the disposition or whatever it is. So I would say for pastoral reasons, one would have to be pretty flexible, especially about a sacrament, the center of which is the mercy of God for the loved sinner. The sinner is always loved, not reviled or pushed away or thought of as less. And that's why whatever the sinner needs, you and me too, that seems to me to be paramount. So why, yeah. why are some priests saying that, that this shouldn't be done? It seems to make sense that we, should, that we should allow it. Well, have you ever been to, I'll try to be careful not to advertise here, but have you ever been to a drive-in food restaurant? I have many times, yeah. Especially, the, in, especially in America, by the way. <laughs> yeah, the encounter is a tad impersonal. 
it's a tad mechanical. It's sometimes through a window or practically. The element of personal encounter and warmth and involvement and mutual trust and all that is reduced to an absolute minimum. Even the conversation is sometimes a formula. If a drive-in confession begins to smack of that kind of thing, I think it falls very short of the kind of merciful, forgiving sacramental encounter that I was talking about. So I think one should be nervous of saying, this is a good practice and we should do it in large numbers, like a fast food restaurant. Mm -hmm. But to bring down a decree and say it could not be done or never be done, might be to deprive some people of something which they would consider the best they could receive at that moment. So I wouldn't be absolute in other words. What was that last thing you said there, sorry? I wouldn't be absolute in other words. Yes. There are many guidelines, but there is also prudent judgment in pastoral circumstances. So the, the judgment, Graham, in Charleston, uh, last I heard was, uh, according to that priest that, that you were about to read from, it's not okay. Uh, do you empathize at all with those people or do you think they should be whipped into line, uh, for want of a better term, uh, by, by the, next, the next level up? Like what, what should be done there, do you think? I, I think we've been talking a lot about context and the whole picture. And I, unless we can draw that bishop's mind or that priest's mind and figure out what exactly is keeping him from allowing people to actually drive in confession, we know that the priest thinks it's not dignified, but we don't know what the bishop thinks. Mm -hmm. And until we can really understand why the bishop disapproves and does not allow drive in confessions, there's no way I can make a judgment on whether or not higher ups should be involved. However, I will specify that salvifically, I don't think it's a good chess move. Um, I think that most of these bishops and priests who are against drive in confessions are hinging um, their statements on the fact that any lay person, uh, an act of perfect contrition, which is true, um, but an act of perfect contrition is really difficult to make. And there are a lot of people out there who think they're making uh, perfect act of perfect contritions, and they're not because there's a lot of misinformation on the internet. And I guarantee that most of the books people have in their houses aren't saying this is how you make a perfect, an act of perfect contrition. You have to be doing it out of the correct disposition, which is you need to be penitential, yeah. not just because you fear punishment, but because you have a great and overwhelming love for God. And it's very similar to spiritual communion. And I once heard this little interesting tidbit, which is that Jesus has two chalices in heaven. One of them is gold and one of them is silver. And in the gold chalice, he puts all of your physical communions that you've made with the Eucharist. In the silver chalice, he holds all of the spiritual communions you've made, which goes to show that both of them belong in a chalice, but one of them is a little bit more valuable. And you should be, if you're making an act of, of perfect contrition, you should be doing it with the correct mindset, which is as soon as you're able to, you need sacramental confession. And I'm sorry if I'm rambling here a little bit. I've got a lot to say, and I'm trying to make sure I say it correctly. But the thing is about perfect contrition is, one of the things that perfect contrition is contingent upon is the desire to receive sacramental confession as soon as possible. Okay. You have to ask yourself, are these people, you know, making acts of perfect contrition, are they seeking out confession as soon as possible? And if you have a drive-in confession available, why are you making an act of perfect contrition 
if you have the means to go to sacramental confession as soon as possible. Mm. That was a little bit convoluted, I'm going to admit, but I think I got the gist of what I was thinking out. Good stuff. Well, uh, Father Corkery, I know you have uh, correcting to be doing, but I do want to ask you just before uh, you, you head off, um, and thanks again for doing this. I know it's, it's an hour later in Italy than in Ireland, so I appreciate you staying up. Um, but Graham talking, uh, to me, is clearly he, he, he has done his reading, okay? There are very, very few young uh, people in Ireland uh, with his level of, of reading done. And not only that, but there are very few people of our age in Ireland uh, who take religion and the church seriously, uh, I would say. So can you talk a little bit about how you feel uh, in Ireland in, in, in that religious sense and about the place of the church in Ireland? I know you've been away for six years, but uh, still the, the church is, is undergoing quite, I suppose, um, a transformation in Ireland right now. So can you talk to me about how you feel uh, in the middle of all that? Well, I mean, I would be disappointed that the church isn't as central to people's lives as it was to mine, for example, when I left school. Okay, I joined a religious order, but I knew that religion was important and it was about your whole life, not just about a bit. That God was real and relationship with God was real and it made a difference how you decided to live your life um, in that relationship and all other relationships were somehow involved. Young people I know nowadays, they just don't, sometimes they're quite nice when they say things like this, but they perceive the church as relevant to me, but not to them. I don't know why that is. Uh, there have been many changes in society. The church is not the place they go when they have problems. They seek other people to help them with problems. Um, they don't find attending church on Sundays um, something that they feel drawn to do. They have done it, of course, but they will say things like they find it boring. Yeah. And the answer to that, of course, is, well, maybe if you really knew what was going on, you wouldn't find it boring. Yeah. But that's a kind of slick answer, because how can we get them to taste that without creating a whole ambience in which that could become open to them again? I mean, I do think that the church in Ireland, and I'm part of the church in Ireland, and I've been a priest in Ireland for a long time, has to some extent failed people. Then the sins of the church and of members of the church, the public ones especially, haven't given the church great credibility. The church has, you know, perhaps been sometimes hypocritical. Mm -hmm. uh, and all of this has created the circumstances. But in my mind, when I'm talking to you are also big thick books that I get paid to read about theories of secularization, about the decline of religion, the shift of its place, relativism, religion becoming one strand in a colorful plurality. All of that is part of a huge set of sociological phenomena that we could dissect here all night. Um, and I don't want to place blame. I mean, I don't think I'm to blame because the generation behind me and my family and friends don't attend church and go to mass. Thank God they still talk to me, even about these things. Um, but I, I wrote a book once and in the front of the book, I dedicated it to all the young people in my family. 
And I said something simply like, I quoted Isaiah about the love of God for everybody and saying that I wished that that was something that they could discover at the heart of their lives. Because I think that is one of the keys to being happy. Mm. So I don't want people to go to church because that would mean the priests are getting it right again. We're on top. People are doing what we want. It's all. I want them to go because God is good. And I want them to be able to find him there. So therefore, I want the church to find better ways of welcoming them and showing them the face of God and being the face of God for them and all that. You see, the important thing is the love of and relationship with God. How do you... The community is needed for that. You can't believe in your own. Mm. Church is needed. But we have a lot of problems in Ireland. And you know, even with all the sociologists in the world, I couldn't... I'd be back in Ireland fixing everything if I was that good. <laughs> Very last thing, if you don't mind me asking, how is the coronavirus uh, experience like for you? It's not only you're, you're unique in one sense in that you're in Italy, neither of us are obviously there. And also uh, you're in a kind of a, a, a protected space with probably a few dozen or a few hundred other priests, but uh, you're maybe not exposed to, to the outside world. So just, can you just tell me what's that like day to day, how is that affecting you? Well, the first question that always arises, you know, when the restrictions came in from the government and people like us who live in colleges, we're 80 people in this house. Okay. Okay. The restriction is that we don't go out. That uh, if shopping is to be done, one or two are designated to do that. And that in fact is what happens. Um, we have a couple of people who come in to help with cooking for 80 people, That's, uh, but they do that uh, in discussion with us and also according to their own will. We are careful. I would love to go out, but one of the reasons I don't go out is that every time one of us goes out, we make it a little bit more possible for the virus to come in. And if it does, religious communities affected, very often everybody gets it. But I feel even though my work is not work with the sick, my work is work with students and I can do almost all of it here. So I continue doing that. That keeps me half sane and makes me feel also I'm being responsible. But occasionally I say, well, Jim, that's my name, Jim. Why wouldn't you be out there with people who are sick taking the risk? Why don't you feed the hungry, clothe the naked, visit the sick? Now, I can't do that just as a decision on my own. I'd have to do it also because of all the people who'd be affected if I were doing that that I'm living with. I'd have to maybe live elsewhere. I'm also 66 and I have diabetes. Right. I'm big in the risk group. But the question does arise for me. Should I be risking my life? I have a nephew who's a doctor, goes to work every day. And I see the police, I see the street workers, I see the health workers coming off the tram outside our window. To me, these are the saintly people of today mm. because they're doing something at risk to themselves. And um, the coronavirus has been difficult, not just because of the limiting of your movement, but also because you have those kinds of thoughts and you say, maybe I should just go out there and mm be doing something too but it's not a straightforward decision and all of the advice i'm getting is not to do that especially because i am in the vulnerable age group too okay. well i hope you keep doing what you're doing and i hope life can return to 
normality at some stage. I, I don't know anything about when that will happen. Obviously, I probably know far less than most people because I've switched off altogether uh, from, from the coverage of it. So um, thanks a million for, for talking to us tonight. And uh, I'd love to, to meet you or to see you at some stage in the future. Whenever, the, whenever that comes up. Can I say one tiny thing before I go? And sure. it's the Graham also that I have enjoyed meeting, especially, as you say, seeing a young person who takes such an interest in his religion and in its content and knowing so much about it and all that. I suppose my answers to you have been a bit in terms of let's not focus too much on material behaviors. Who hears what confession where? Who gives communion to who? Who says one thing taken out of context? There's something that governs our behavior. And it's that we want to be helpful to one another and show the face of God to one another. I'm prepared to be quite elastic on that front. Mm. I know that's sticking my neck out. But I think, you know, you remember Pope Francis saying, uh, the mercy of God, you know, the sacraments are medicine for the sick, mm. not only rewards for the good. Or he said the other day that if a person uh, cannot confess their sins, well, let them pray and tell God their sins. He didn't speak about perfect contrition and have the intention of going to confession when they can, but he had no doubt that they would be forgiven without doing that. In that sense, it's not mechanical because God is ridiculously generous and uh, lavishly merciful. And so uh, that's the perspective I, pr I prefer to keep than yes. looking at particular acts of behavior and saying, that's good, it's bad, that's permissible, that's not yeah. permissible. So, but that's just where I'm coming from. Well, no, that's, uh, you, you speak well and with, with authority and I, I'm grateful for that contribution. And as I said, I, I mean this, uh, a lot of this is very new to me. And even that there are people like you and then there are people like Graham who, who don't agree, this is all, something I'm interested in politics and this is it, I agree with you you're it, you shouldn't fully focus on the politics of of the church but it's it's something to talk about and and it's a way it's a way to talk about these things so uh I'm really I enjoyed having you uh and thanks a million but I think oh. Graham and I will keep going if that's okay oh certainly please do good night Graham I mean you're younger and it's earlier there that's earlier yeah. there you don't have to go to bed it's getting close to my bedtime, I'll be honest. <laughs> Thank you both. I think there's a huge value in conversation. Nothing should be off no. discussion. We should talk about everything. There you go. And find our way together. That's how so, we're doing. Good night from <laughs> Rome. Thank you, Father. All right. Thank you both. See you. All right. I'll hit leave meeting now. Perfect. So, Graham, do you, are, you, are you there? Yeah. So do you mind uh, putting into context a little bit, um, how do I put this? We just heard from a Jesuit, okay? Would his way of speaking about uh, the things that we spoke about fit the, the way you would expect a, a Jesuit to speak, you personally? I don't think there was enough substance in what he said for me to actually determine whether or not that's typical of someone who was educated a Jesuit. Um, because all of what he said was necessarily true. I, it's not good to be too exclusive regarding rules and regulations in the church. Um, it, you know, you can, you can just pray to God and have your sins forgiven and get to confession as soon as possible. And um, 
you know, a host of other things that he said that were all very true. The problem is where you let it go too far, uh, where you let it spill out. And I wasn't able to determine if he was the type of priest to just let it spill out. I would like to talk to him more, obviously, and get to know him better and see how he thinks about these things. But I have encountered a lot of Jesuit priests who do the right thing by allowing some movability when it comes to rules and regulations. And they understand that God is generous and God is all merciful. The problem is where you're so open-minded that your brains fall out, <laughs> as G.K. Chesterton put it very um, wittily. Uh, and that's that's typically what I find um, from a Jesuit priest. And that, that's not to be unfair and generalize too much. I know a lot of very doctrinally sound Jesuit priests who are, are very stern about the rules and regulations because they're there for a reason. The rules and regulations are there for us to base ourselves on. In a sense, you have to take theology to the ground. You know, how do we apply these ecclesiastical regulations to everyday life? That's where perfect contrition comes in. That's where praying for sins to simply have them forgiven and then get to sacramental confession as soon as possible. But if you'll, if you'll notice about Pope Francis' statement, I was talking about an act of perfect contrition. And Father said, well, you don't necessarily have to make that. As Pope Francis said, you simply have to pray and ask God for forgiveness. But notice that he still said that you have to get to confession as soon as you can, which is essentially uh, an act of perfect contrition, but without the proper terminology. In essence, um, it's contrition. It may not be perfect, but God is understanding. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's whether he fits into the mold of classic post-1960, or I would even argue post-1890 Jesuit priests, uh, I, can't, I can't say for sure. So uh, you talked about people going too far. Do you think, I know I'm just throwing massive things at you here, uh, but I think you're able to deal with them. Does Pope Francis regularly or occasionally or habitually or never go too far in your opinion? Um... I will say this, I will say that there have been a series of interviews um, done by this classic Italian interviewer. He's an atheist, uh, him and Pope Francis are like this, and they've done a few interviews together. But the quirk with these interviews is that this atheist interviewer does not write down or take notes during the entire interview. So when he publishes these interviews he has with Pope, he's going off of what he remembers, and he's an old guy, so we don't know if he's oh, he, he writes them, you mean? Sorry. Sorry, what? He writes them. They're not recorded, like. No, he doesn't even write them. He doesn't. He just listens. But he writes a piece. Like, are they recorded on tape? No. Okay, so he writes pieces about these interviews where he doesn't record the, what's said. Okay. Yeah, doesn't take notes. And a few of these interviews have been scandalous, um, in that, like I say, they're offensive to pious ears. But I, I encourage viewers to do research on that on them on their own and uh, come to their own conclusion about whether these statements are really offensive to pious ears or is this interviewer actually lying about what Pope Francis says. And also we have to ask the question, if this interviewer keeps saying things about Pope Francis and what he has said that don't necessarily sound doctrinally sound, why does Pope Francis keep agreeing to do interviews with this guy? Exactly. There's no telling. 
Um, you would have to assume, though, that they're pretty accurate, let's say. You would have to assume. Otherwise, it's just, I mean, like, why does he keep doing the interviews? Obviously, he has people who are watching or who are reading his interviews. I mean, you can't just, I mean, you could mix all that stuff up. But, I mean, what's the benefit mm. besides getting more viewership, perhaps? So what are, what are the kind of things that have been scandalous, uh, according to your reading? I, I would once again ask viewers to, to research that on their own. Okay, fair enough. I, I found that whenever I listen to people tell me about what the Pope has supposedly said in an interview, the shock value is way higher. And it can, it can be a lot more believable to hear someone actually say some of those things. And so, yes. um, out of, I suppose, a form of charity, I would ask that anyone who's interested look that up on their own. Okay, fair enough. Well, I want to... I want to ask you, I was expecting Father Sexton here, so uh, he's not here right now. And do you mind if we go back to um, a conversation I think that we had in January, and or maybe it was February, I can't remember. And it was about confession, and we talked about it already. Uh, forgetting the coronavirus, just confession as it is, can you talk to me about why it is so important uh, for a Catholic to partake in that sacrament. And uh, I suppose the reason I think that this seems basic, right? But it's, it's, it's really basic and we don't even, we don't even do it, most people. So that something's, something's not connecting there. I, don't, I think it's fair to say. So why, I, okay, I'm incoherent. I believe that most people aren't aware of uh, the importance of confession. What is the importance of confession, in your opinion? Salvation is ultimately what it boils down to. Um, this is, you know, classic Catholic teaching. Um, and it really boils down to mortal and venial sins, which are the categories that Thomas Aquinas uses to describe our state of sin. A venial sin is described as more of like a, a slight offense against God. It's not grave matter, whereas a mortal sin would be grave matter, which is, I mean, it can be anything depending on your state in life. Anything can be a grave matter, really. Um, I say that lightly. I don't want to be too sure of myself, but depending on how you do it, anything can be grave matter. Um, and the difference between mortal and venial sin is that venial sin, what it does to your soul is it it's a stain on your soul. Um, more of a light stain, kind of like a like a spaghetti stain on a white shirt, but like a small one. And then mortal sin is simply you you cut yourself off from God completely. Um, your prayers essentially warrant nothing because you have decided against God. Um, your soul is like has a muck on it, and this is what sacramental confession is for. If you die in a state of mortal sin, which is essentially to say that you die unrepentant of your sins, you will spend eternity in hellfire. So if you are a Catholic faithful person and you believe in heaven and hell, you believe in the authority of the church, that should ring some bells for you. Hey, maybe I don't want to spend eternity in hellfire. Mm. And the reason it's important as a, a sacrament besides just what it does to your soul is it's a continuation of Christ's ministry on earth, which is what the seven sacraments essentially are, are continuations of Christ's ministry on earth through his, his church. So the sacrament of confession 
is most reasonably derived from sacred scripture in which Christ imparts the ability to forgive sins to his apostles. He says, whosoever sins you forgive are forgiven, and whosoever's, whoever's sins you retain are retained. That's not just like some fancy stuff at the end. Whoever sins you retain are retained. If you go to confession, sacramental confession, a priest can deny you absolution because he either feels that you are not truly repentant or he simply wants you to, I, I, there's a, a host of reasons why a priest might say, I may, I may not absolve you. Mm. Um, and that has happened historically. So as a Catholic, that's paramount. And that's something you can't ignore. And another thing is if you're keen on receiving the Eucharist as a Catholic, which <laughs> I would hope you are, you can't receive the sacrament, blessed sacrament to be specific. You can't receive the Eucharist in a state of moral sin. Mm which is what we were talking about earlier with Father, about um, whoever eats and drinks uh, the body and blood of Christ unworthily eats and drinks damnation upon himself. Mm. Well, this is where that is directed. Father uh, Corkery and many others don't seem to, well, no, I don't want to put forwards in his mouth. I'll deal with what he said first. He said that something to the effect that I wasn't at fault if I didn't know I was at fault. Remember, he said something like that for the three years. I said, do you know what I'm talking about when he said something like that? His exact words, he, he, I said, I, I didn't know that that was, uh, that was wrong. And, and he kind of said, well, if you didn't know, I mean, that's, that's kind of not your fault. So yeah. what about, what about that? If you weren't to know, to take communion, uh, if you don't know that you're supposed to go to confession, uh, and, and be in the right state of mind before doing that. Yeah, so um, another nuance in sacramentology, well, I, would, I actually don't know if it's under the umbrella of sacramentology, but moral theology, really, um, is we distinguish between two types of sin. I'm sorry, correction, two types of ignorance. There's invincible ignorance, and then there's invincible ignorance. Right. So regarding the former, invincible ignorance is when you are ignorant of something but you have had no means to you've had no means to really understand why what exactly it's it is that you're ignorant of. Apologies for the for the start there. So you don't know what you're missing out, which is what you were experiencing essentially is invincible ignorance. You didn't know that you were to go to confession to clean to clean your soul. And so you were invincibly ignorant and therefore not hold, held accountable in the high divine court, so to speak. Somebody who is invincibly ignorant understands that there is another truth and they have likely rejected that truth because they don't believe it or a host of different reasons. Somebody knows that there is a higher truth. They're not pursuing it. Uh, it's laziness essentially, but they don't pursue it because they don't want to be held accountable. Mm. That's invincible ignorance essentially okay. is, you know, uh, thinking, hmm, you know, maybe there is something to this Eucharist thing, and maybe I should go to confession, but I'm not going to look into it because I don't, I don't want to disagree with the results, essentially. That, that would make you invincibly ignorant, and you're held accountable for that. So most people, I think, uh, don't follow the rules, um, <laughs> yeah. quite frankly, uh, in so many ways. Uh, I think it's fair to say that is a phenomenon uh, that kind of laxness uh, is is probably a more modern phenomenon than than before i don't know if that's correct to say 
can you tell me why do you think uh, these things are as malleable as they are now and, and as open to interpretation and open to personal personal conviction, I suppose, more than this is how it is. Uh, if you don't do this, uh, you are at fault. Yeah, I would say it probably has to do with um, the cult of conscience, right? The, the, the church is really, really, really keen on the conscience. It's very important. Uh, the conscience is, is, is God-given. It is essentially, but not exactly, God's voice, and it's ingrained within us. So it's a, it's a part of who we are. And every decision we make is due to our free will and our conscience. And so this idea of the conscience combined with this modern uh, over-focusing on individualism creates this idea that, well, it's relativism is what it is. It's, it's relativism. You know, like if I think that this is how it is, God understands because it's my conscience. Mm-hmm. So it's probably fine. That's all I can really say about the rest of the world in regards to why confession might be so malleable in terms of not having to go versus having to go. Mm. I can say though, however, that being raised in Protestant America, you get a lot of Protestant converts to Catholicism and they believe very firmly that, you know, you don't confess your sins to man, which essentially is just a gross misunderstanding of Catholic theology because we believe that we're not confessing our sins to a man, but to a representative who is acting in the person of Christ and that representative being the priest. Mm-hmm. So we truly really believe that we're confessing our sins to Christ, but Christ is acting through the minister or the priest. So these Protestants who convert to Catholicism, they still hold on to this belief sometimes that their confessions to God and their the repentance is a personal matter mm-hmm. and they shouldn't confess their sins to a man. And I've encountered several, several, several Catholics who were once previously who were previously Protestant, who still hold this belief. But they know that it's church teaching that they need confession, but there's something in their mind that is, it's, it's conflicting and it damage, it's damaging. So one, I want to paint a picture here. If you were to go to Ireland or even to New York or Boston or somewhere in the Northeast of America, there'd be stereotypes about people in the South, right? And there's a certain accent that people put on and there are certain uh, connotations that come with that, right? And they talk about the Bible belt and Bible thumping and all that kind of thing. So that's possibly an unfair way of, of just lumping all these people together. And I asked one of these people uh, the other day, what are the stereotypes you guys have of Catholic people? And this person said, well, it's kind of like ritualistic and they just kind of do it, just going through the motions uh, and they don't really mean it. And I think that's in many ways a fair criticism because whatever about uh, the, the Baptists, um, they seem to have a conviction in what they're saying uh, more than many Catholics. So do you, do, you take, do you think that's a fair criticism? I think from, I think it is a fair criticism. I think, um, from an outsider's perspective, you could easily see Catholicism as too ritualistic, uh, people just going through the motions, et cetera, et cetera. And as Father pointed out earlier, there are people who aren't going to Mass because, well, they just don't get it. Mm-hmm. Uh, they don't get anything out of it. It's poor catechesis is what it boils down to. You know, 
I mean, there was meaning, sorry, is that teaching? Yes, like poor instruction regarding the faith to people. And that's why they don't understand the, the importance of mass, that it is, in fact, the continuation of Christ's sacrifice on the cross. It is, in fact, a holy sacrifice. It is, in fact, extra-temporal and takes place outside of time, in a sense. It is, in fact, heaven coming and meeting earth on the altar. You ask yourself, how many Catholics do you really think understand that truth? Also, I'm holding this nail. I've been using it as sort of a... So you have to ask yourself, did I know that? And if I didn't know that, and I'm a pretty average guy, what are the odds that the person next to me in the pew understands that heaven is meeting earth right now on the altar and mass? Mm. I don't know. What do you think? A pretty high likelihood that if I don't get it, the next person doesn't, I would say. Well, I meant the general you, don't, but just to clarify, I meant the general you as a whole, not just you. One. You mean, what would, ask your question again. I, I, I said, um, if you, as in the general you, if one does not understand that that's happening and they're a pretty average mass going Catholic, what do you think the odds are that the person next to that person doesn't really understand? Quite high. I would assume so. Yeah. And I've spoken to some of these people who are modern converts who have gone through these, these uh, most recent RCIA classes. Some of these people aren't even getting confession for the first time. Some of these people are being told that they don't really have to believe that the Eucharist is the true body, blood, soul, and divinity of Christ. It's a disaster. It's a disaster. It, it really um, contrasts with personal devotion in the Middle Ages, in the medieval periods, where people thought that they were so unworthy to receive the body of Christ that they often didn't even receive the Eucharist. And that's where you get the rule in the church. Uh, that you have to receive at least once a year and during Easter season because people hundreds and hundreds of years ago thought that they were too unworthy for the body of Christ and they didn't receive. And nowadays we have quite the opposite. We have upwards of 70% of American Catholics not believing in the true presence. And yet so many people receive. It's quite perverted, isn't it? It sounds, the picture you paint sounds perverted. All right. So uh, can you tell us about that exact uh, part of the mass and and I think that is the biggest difference isn't it between Catholics and Protestants or it's it's the one that's always the case right uh, transubstantiation yes. so uh, what's I, <laughs> I'm not asking this for like for effect in a rhetorical fancy way what's going on there <laughs> what's going on with the discrepancy between uh, oh. Catholic sacramentology and, and, and Protestants the lack thereof I wouldn't go that far. I would just say what's going on with, with transubstantiation, uh, period. What's going on with transubstantiation? Okay, so transubstantiation. I think these are things that, that I should know, and they probably are. But like you said, if one doesn't know, what are the chances that the next person doesn't know? I yeah. think it's pretty high. So I think it is worth going, going through this if, if you're willing. Sure. So transubstantiation wasn't actually defined until the Middle Ages. He were here is defined. It wasn't defined in a council as saying um, it's a substance and it's changing, transubstantiation. However, we see, you know, this was, all, it's often pinned to the 11th century um, where the church formally described transubstantiation. However, we see that the church, the Catholic church, 
very clearly believed in, in transubstantiation as we know it now, all the way back and, you know, going to Christ's time. Um, we Otherwise, there wouldn't necessarily be um, a Eucharistic sacrifice in Mass. Um, and the church had to deal with many heresies in the time regarding Catholics who did not believe that the real presence was there. And if you look at the early church fathers, you see that they all write profusely regarding um, the real presence of Christ. Mm. And uh, can I put links here, I wonder? Maybe in the comments. Can you, can you access the YouTube video? I don't know, can I? Go, okay, uh, look up on YouTube, Fergus James Murphy, and you'll find the channel, and you'll find the video, and you'll have to turn off the, the sound. How about this? How about I send it to you, and then you put it in the description? Good idea. So what I, what's going to be in the description is going to be um, churchfathers.org, and on this website. How are oh, you sending this to me, by the way? Sorry, what? How are you sending this to me? I sent it on email. Church.org is a compilation of a lot of church fathers, early church fathers, writing about and professing their belief in essentially Catholic doctrine and Catholic teaching. And this is important, not just because it's a bunch of guys who we believe have, but these people were the closest people to Christ that we know. And that is an indicative that there is probably some significance or even at the greatest, there's some truth in what they're saying, and we should take that into consideration. Um, there's this writer for Catholic Answers, his name is Jimmy Akin. He says, Fathers Know Best. The whole book on church fathers, check it out, Fathers Know Best, last name Akin, A-K-I-N. So Fathers Know Best, and, and that's important because these people who wrote these beliefs were disciples of the apostles or disciples of the disciples, or apostles of the apostles. And, um, they aren't just making this stuff up. This is coming from the apostles. And so that's really significant, because these are the closest testimonies we have to the people who knew Christ. Um, anyway, I feel like I got a little off track there. So was defined formally. I lost you there. Uh, After you said you got off track, you started another sentence. Yeah, did I go out? Sorry. Um, transubstantiation, as we know, it wasn't defined until the Middle Ages, roughly. Um, so transubstantiation, trans meaning like changing trans, and then substantiation having to do with the substance, the adjective over. So, oops, says my connection's unstable. I hope this is okay. This is all pretty new. Okay. So what we believe, I don't know, how far do you want me to go? Man, Graham, the the internet is is open. Go, just go. <laughs> anyway, so what we believe is that what is consecrated in the Roman Rite Church is unleavened bread, as a substance, the body, soul, and divinity of Christ. So we distinguish between two things in an object. There is substance, or an essence, and then there is an, the accidents of it, which is reflecting the early Greek philosophers' understanding of nature. Um, it's Platian and Aristotelian. And so what we, the analogy we draw is that if there is a chair that exists in the material world, then somewhere above there must be 
a reflection of that chair that is the complete and perfect chair. Mm. And we call that chairness. And so this chair that I'm sitting in here is just an imperfect reflection of a perfect chair that exists in some ethical uh, dimension above. And so the substance is that it, it's a chair. In its essence, it is a chair. The accident there would be what color is the chair? Mm. What is the chair made out of? What does the chair smell like? If I took a bite out of the chair, would it taste like steak? Those are the accidents of the chair. So we take that understanding of existence and we put it into the Eucharist. The substance, the essence, the substance of that host becomes the body of Christ. Accidents are that it still tastes like bread and it still looks like bread and it still feels like bread. All of those things. So that is a very uh, philosophical way to so understand the Eucharist. Very quickly, um, is there any way you can improve your connection? I, I don't want to keep interrupting us but i think if we can that's important to to try and do is there anything you can do there uh, is that any better well we'll see i i guess we'll have to try it for a few minutes but anyway wh how is that substance um how how does that process take place under what conditions Okay, under what conditions? This is interesting. There's some cool, cool little nuances here when it comes to um, how does this take place? It takes place due to the words of institution, right? Um, which is that there are words that Christ instituted allows us, and when I say us, I mean priests, to command the bread to become the body, which is from the Gospels when at the Last Supper Christ says, Take all of you and eat. This is my body, which will get the whole thing. John chapter six, the Last Supper discourse. Mm -hmm. um, and so we we words in mass, and we believe that it very miraculously becomes the body of Christ. Body, blood, soul, and divinity of Christ, anyway. But it has to be done by a priest. It, it, it obviously can't be done by. Uh... It has to be done by a priest. Okay, fair enough. It's very similar to how in, in the times of uh, ancient Judaism, sacrifices to be done by priests. Okay. And we see our priests today as being a continuation of the order of priests from the line of Melchizedek. So it's the new covenant of Judaism. And that's why these priests are able to make these sacrifices on the altar. Okay, Graham, I want to take a quick break and I'm going to try and contact uh, Father Sexton. Can you hang on? Sure. Yes, I'll okay. just... So why don't we turn off our video and our microphone and uh, I will send you a text when we're, when we're back on. Is that okay? All right. Yeah. So
You're muted. Start my video, yeah? Yeah. Get out of the way now, yeah? Well, hold on a second. I'll, I'll make sure you're on first and foremost. Don't you call me Fergus like in a couple... James Murphy. Uh, yeah, there, there you go. Here we are. Okay. Where's the O'Rourke guy? Are you the O'Rourke? I am the O'Rourke, yeah. I'm, 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 I'm away for a minute. I'm not staying around for this now. So there you are, you're fine. Am I? Yeah, just push it on there a bit. Yeah, you're grand. Okay. Get, did I... This is Jar from Tipperary. He's a real hotshot. Hot shot. So who's Jar there? Jar Ryan, yeah, he's a hotshot from Tipperary. He's a priest, is he? A Jesuit? I'm afraid so, yeah, yeah. All right. <laughs> uh, and, 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 and actually a, a very holy one. Very holy one, yeah. Yeah, he just conceals, conceals it well. So where, where in the world are you, Father Sexton? How do you mean, where in the world am I? <laughs> are you are you in Trinity College? Are you in Ranla? I'm, I'm a chaplain in Trinity, yeah. But but physically, are you in Dublin? Physically, I'm in Milton Park, Dublin Six. Lovely, I I'm familiar with that part of the world. This is Graham Canton. Graham, say hello there. Hello, Father. How are you doing? Hello, Graham. Where's Graham from? Hell. Where are you from? Mobile, Alabama. Obama. Oh yeah. Oh, oh my gosh! One interesting thing, Father Sexton, about the 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 deep south is on the Gulf Coast there are actually a number of uh, French and Spanish, I suppose, inspired communities. Graham, is that fair to say? So you you would think it's all it's all Baptists and and Protestants there, but there's actually a lot of Catholics in on the bottom of Mississippi and the bottom of Alabama. Yes, there and Louisiana, obviously as well. Graham, is that correct? That's correct. The first settlers really to come here. One of the first dioceses in the in the states was established here. So um, there's a, there's a strong old Catholic community here. Okay. Okay. Well, uh, Father Sexton, you're you're uh, Sean's younger younger brother, are you? Yeah, and and we're broadcasting live to the world here. The world. Uh, yeah, I can feel <laughs> the world looking in. All right. Yeah. I thought oh, you said you, Jim Corker was with you. He was with us. Yeah, but he gone. He, he could only stand us for so long. Um, he has the answer to all your problems. So yeah, no, we, we, we need reinforcements. Uh, He's a hot shot. From the Jesuits. <laughs> <laughs> I'm I'm the past guy, so I am. You know, I'm university chaplain in my declining years. So what's that like being at, at Trinity College? It's obviously on the one hand, it's um, tradition. I suppose it's founded uh, only Protestants, wasn't it? But now. There isn't 15, a lot of, 1592, yeah. There, there isn't a lot of room for, um, or a lot of um, emphasis on religion, let's say, in, in that institution, I think it's fair to say. so. That's very reasonable, yeah. Yeah, so how, how do you feel uh, in that environment? <laughs> well, there's a long story about Trinity, but I won't give you the long story. It was founded in 1592. No Catholic could attend or graduate from it for 250 years. Um, and it's really only with Catholic emancipation in 1829 that um, Catholics began to attend and uh, in small numbers. Um, it was a smallish university for a long time. UCD was founded in the early part of the 20th century and um, in 1968, and there was a kind of a ban or discouragement of Catholics to attend Trinity for some years by the Irish bishops, not a total ban, but a discouragement. And now, 
of the 17,000 students, uh, 80 plus percent are from Catholic background, not foreground, background. Okay. Um, like you're a bit like yourself, you know, um, Gonzaga and all that kind of stuff. So, uh, yeah. and uh, uh, so I'm a chaplain among four chaplains, so two Catholic chaplains, one Church of Ireland, one Methodist. We're, so we're an ecumenical chaplaincy. And tomorrow actually is Trinity Monday in, in Trinity. It's a big day of celebration, but everything is online now for the present shutdown. So, a chaplain? Well, who the hell knows? Um, you you um, you have to hang around, loiter with intent, as they say sometimes. You know, um, you you're they're not all knocking down the door asking for further enlightenment, to like the Gonzaga pupils might have done in your time, looking for further enlightenment on the latest uh, developments in Christology. You know, yeah, I I think you're 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 being you're messing here, obviously. Uh, so oh, I don't mess. No, no, I don't mess. No. What? What was it like? Do you mind me asking? Uh, during the referendum in 2018, did you have any um, public <clears throat> position on that, or were were you exposed to any sort of wrath? I don't want to say wrath, uh, but anti-Catholic sentiments. Let's say. Yeah, there was a certain amount of of uh, uh, po political correctness was prevalent in the college there, particularly with the students' union. You're talking about the abortion referendum now, are you? Yeah. That's the one, yeah. I mean, the earlier referendum was to do with um, same-sex marriage, so it was. Yeah. Uh, so both of those, the, the students' union took a very clear um, position in favour in both cases of, of, of same-sex marriage and of repealing the, the Eighth Amendment. Um, but no, there was no official position of the... I mean, the chaplain didn't have any official position um, I certainly expressed my views from time to time, which was in favour of neither, but for various reasons. Um, but there was an overwhelming sense that the student population was in favour, particularly of the Eighth Amendment, the abortion referendum, that, uh, of course, it was, it was against women. And, and both referendums were presented as in, in terms of negative on people that suffered, both in the same-sex marriage, the people who were gay um, were discriminated against, and in the abortion referendum that women were discriminated against. There was no talk about the the um, the child or, or, or rights of the child at that particular time, so it wasn't, a, it wasn't a, an issue really in some ways. So do you despair when you think about these kind of events, or are you are you optimistic about Things like no, this. I don't despair because um, I mean, there's we're living in a climate of political correctness, uh, right, left, and center. Um, there's some people that have are, are, are more reflective than others, obviously, um, and, and the government, of course, was in favor of both of both changes. So I mean, that's a that's a reflection of the of the Ireland of today, you might say. Um, so from the Catholic Church's point of view, there would be there would be a conflict there. Yes. Um, in terms of values and in terms of the views on marriage and the views on the sacredness of of um, human life. So there's a there there is a but despair no. Uh, um, but Ireland, uh, I mean, something you have to understand about Ireland. I suppose I've been here in Trinity for eleven years now, but 
um, and I was in the school world before that, including the school that you spent some time in, for better or for worse. Mm. Uh, I, Ireland is going through a sustained adolescence, would be my way of viewing terms, and adolescents react to things that their elders are doing um, with anger and with screaming incomprehension. But I think that's part of the climate of the Ireland of today. Now, perhaps um, the, the, this experience of the COVID-19 experience may bring about a humility that hasn't been there very obviously before. So when you talk about an adolescence, that's, it's a funny way to put it, but is it not a bit of a cop-out? Like, would France not have gone through a similar adolescence and now they're completely secular, isn't that correct? And, and largely atheistic. So is there any... Sorry, I lost you there. To say we are I lost you through, there. To say we are going through an adolescence it suggests that over time we will mature, right? And, and maybe come back. It doesn't always follow, of course. Some people remain adolescent for the rest of their lives. You know, that's a possibility too. Exactly. So is there not, is there not a, a need to, I suppose, uh, be the parent on, on your part and, and not obviously only on your part, but on, on the church in Ireland? Do you think maybe you could say that the church <laughs> is too... Is too is too afraid or, or too uh, ashamed maybe now and and we can't afford for that to be the case. Well, um, I hear what you're saying, as they say. I mean, obviously, the sex abuse crisis hasn't helped at all. It's it's done great damage to the church, um, and it, it's a most it's a mo most reprehensible thing. But at the same time, you can speak the word and challenge culture and not be heard or not be listened to or not respected. And that's part of the way the reality in Ireland, I think you're right about saying the church has a stance to make um, and as a position to hold about values, mm. which we take from a long tradition, but Pope Francis is, uh, is uh, an outstanding witness to this, mm. but that doesn't mean that you're heard or, or followed. Yes. As I say, Ireland is quite different from France. Uh, you can't compare them. Uh, France has had a revolution in the 18th century, and, and there's a long laicite tradition there that, that's very different from our tradition in Ireland. Okay, fair enough. Uh, you, you mentioned Pope Francis. He's obviously a Jesuit. So you are probably... Well, not obviously, but he is a Jesuit. I don't know about obviously, but... Well, I, as we know, um, I would say. Yes. So, and, and that might mean you're more partial to him than, than other people. Um, so, Graham, do you mind I've me? I've lost you there. I'm losing you. So, I was just saying, you're, you would probably be more supportive of Pope Francis as a Jesuit than other people might be, which is fine. And I, I don't think that follows with respect. I mean, I'm, I, I respect Pope Francis as a Pope, not uh, as a Jesuit. I'd never heard of him until he became Pope, to be honest with you. Okay. And at some stage, he had been effectively out of the Jesuits as a bishop for some years, you know. Well, I, I want to, to, to explore that a little bit. And, and how do you think he has done? And I want to come to Graham in a minute. But Father Sexton, how uh, do you rate his, his progress so far? Is it six years that he's been the Pope now? Yeah, I think he's in his seventh year, yeah. Yeah. So 
do you, what, out of 10, do you give him a score? Is that, is that okay for us to, to talk in those terms? Well, yeah, sure, I'd give him nine and a half, I'd say. So you do support him, not, not purely because oh, you're a teacher, but, but Absolutely, I think he's outstanding uh, prophet. No, not because just because he's a Jesuit, because he's the Pope who stands for values that I stand for, and that I think this church stands for. Mm. He has, I mean, he laid out his, one of the very first places he went to, as you know, was Lampedusa, um, and challenged the world on the, the lack of care for, for the migrant situation. I mean, that was a very um, challenging stance to all of us, not just to, I mean, to all of us. And he's been consistent there in that with a lot of opposition from outside and unfortunately from inside the church as well, from, from rather um, right-wing elements that don't want to be challenged as far as I can see. So, uh, Graeme, could you give us um, a, f a few words on why some people don't like uh, the way Pope Francis does things? Um, I could give you a few words, but I'd rather not dwell on it personally, because I've, I've, I've tried to escape the uh, Pope Francis critique bubble, as it were. Um, I think, as a preface, I would like to say that I, he has great qualities, both administratively and ministrially. He has good qualities. I think where a lot of people lose him is his ambiguity in speech. And I mentioned this earlier in the interview, but there is this, this reporter in Italy, his name's Scalfari, as they call him, atheist, really old, and does interviews with the Pope. Now, these interviews often come out with some pretty ridiculous things that the interviewer ends up saying that the Pope has said. Now, whether or not he actually said those things, we can't confirm because the interviewer doesn't yeah. <laughs> in the interviews at all. But there is one particular interview that I remember um, some buddies of mine being up in arms about, and that is that Francis allegedly said that hell does not exist. We simply I'm losing a lot of stuff here. Sorry, what now? I don't know what he said there. Pope Francis allegedly said, Graham. Pope Francis had allegedly said, according to this interviewer, that hell does not exist and souls simply experience disappearance whenever they die and are not in, in, in communion with Godhead. Now, this is anecdotal, right? Like we have no, because it's from some atheistic 900 year old interviewer who doesn't take notes. And so, I mean, the telling. Yes. A lot of people have trouble with Pope Francis's Amoris Laetitia. Hold on. I've got an unstable connection, it says. It's an unstable connection. Can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you now. Okay. A lot I of people know. from the, uh, I wouldn't even say traditional camp, because first of all, I hate to put lay people into camps. And second of all, it seems redundant to add traditional to Catholicism. Uh, those from the traditional camp have problems with Amoris Laetitia and the decision to pastoral divorced and remarried couples to sacrament of the Eucharist. Um, a lot of people have issues with overemphasis on migration and uh, a bunch of other social justice issues. Um, 
I won't make a comment on those things personally, but I will. I'm just trying to give it from both ends here. People think that he doesn't enough on the church and he focuses too much on global politics, on globalism and migration. Um, a lot of people have taken up issue with, with um, the human fraternity declaration that Pope Francis participated in when he traveled to the United Arab Emirates and he declared that the diversity of religions was willed by God. And so now you have a bunch of theologians trying to play the semantics game, trying to figure out if he's talking about God's passive will or his active, I mean, it's a mess. Mm. And so that's where the um, confusion comes from. And we know, by the way, that God doesn't actively will the diversity of religions. Whether he allows it his permissive will, that's another story. But the fact of the matter is, is that our did not specify, hey, the multitude, the diversity of religions is actively willed by God. He should have specified. Anyway, that's... So on that note, uh, Father Sexton, do you have any response to that? Because to talk about other religions um, in a way that Graham has described uh, Pope Francis as doing is upsetting uh, and some might say misleading or... Um, not in line with the church's doctrine. So what would you say to that? Well, I would say a couple of things. Um, first of all, the Pope is a very faithful Catholic himself and has always has been always a faithful Catholic in his life. Secondly, people don't seem to understand that this loyalty to the Pope, um, and there's only one Pope, Benedict XVI isn't the Pope, he's the last Pope. John, the, uh, John, John Paul II isn't the Pope, he's uh, uh, the second last pope, disloyalty to the pope is disloyalty to the church. And um, there's a very large group of right-wing people, particularly in the United States, if I may say so, um, that are backed by some very wealthy Americans um, that are very troubled by Pope Francis's um, concern for the poor and the challenge to wealthy people to, to care for the poor in the world. And they're the people that are the primary uh, critiques or critics of Pope Francis. Um, and I don't think they're loyal to the church at all. I think they're very disloyal to the church. Um, and they've been backed, unfortunately, by people like Cardinal Raymond Burke and others who, who are who, who try to give the impression that they're being particularly loyal to the church. And in, in fact, the very opposite seems to me to be the truth. Mm. Uh, so that's part of what the Pope is dealing with. He's trying to deal pastorally with certain issues, like, for instance, the issue of divorced and, and remarried people is a very, very troubling and concerning issue. Um, but you take your lead from Christ, first of all, and the tradition of the church and caring. You don't take your lead, um, first of all, from the rule, as, as it were. You take your lead from the gospel, from Christ. And he's, part of his mission as the pope is to, is to lead in, in, in meeting that situation. And unfortunately, there is a very strong right-wing element, as I say, not least in the United States, um, but in other places too. I don't uh, blame the United States for everything, even though, God help us, they, they have a president at the moment who talks dangerous nonsense right, left, and center, and uh, is misleading and is supported by some Catholics, I'm afraid. I don't know how any Christian could support um, Donald J. Trump and his... Uh, in his attitude to dealing with people, but that's a separate and the sideline issue um, that he's leading probably his country over the abyss, but 
um, at least were not in the US. So I, I, that's an aside, uh, that's a personal reflection. Um, but the Pope is on the steady line of interpreting the, the churches leading, uh, being faithful to the gospel, being faithful to the tradition of the church. And, uh, and he has to deal with people that do not, rather like the Pharisees in the gospel, if you reflect on the gospel again and again, they kept on trying to trap Jesus um, because he wasn't following the law as they understood it. And um, they and eventually crucified him. So I, that could I, be Pope Francis's uh, experience too. He could be crucified, but um, Christ has risen. Graham, do you take that parallel uh, of, of Jesus trying to be tripped up by people who knew the law inside out, but really Jesus said, lads, you guys think you're, you're great, but you're really focusing on the wrong thing here. And do and you think there's an element to that uh, with the Pope Francis situation? And, and it, I think, how do you respond to that, that um, statement by Father Sexton, which is correct, that a lot of people who do take issue with Pope Francis are on the right wing side of things. And there's an image of these people uh, as having less of a concern for the forgotten, perhaps. Right. Um, I think it's an interesting, I will have to say that I haven't heard that one. And I've heard a lot of, a lot of, quips from people um, from both sides of the spectrum regarding Pope Francis's politics and uh, right-wing philanthropists. However, to address the part where um, we say that there is a huge right-wing mass, no pun intended, <laughs> um, of people, a <laughs> uh, uh, right-wing mass of people who don't care for the poor and, and they're all uh, too focused on individualism and they're backed by uh, wealthy Americans. My experience with um, many people who would be categorized in, into that area um, is that they have no interest in staying wealthy and keeping poor people down. In fact, many of the people that I've spoken to are distributists um, following the rule of thumb from Pope Leo XIII's Rerum Navarum. They're interested in Christian democracy. Um, the problem with a lot of right-wing Catholics in America is that their best bet is the Republican Party because they don't see any other way to reconcile either abortion with Catholic social teaching. But if they go to the too often, more often than not align with Catholic social teaching, they're compromising because they're favoring a who um, supports abortion. Looks like my connection is unstable again. I think I get the gist of what you're saying. Yeah, keep going. We're good. Um, no offense to be taken, but I think it is an extreme analogy to compare a lot of very faithful Catholics who are labeled right-wing because of their opposition to globalist policies that are being purported from a lot of high people. I'm sorry, not purported, promulgated by very high figures in the church. I think to label them as just simply, simply uh, Pharisees who are looking to crucify Christ and make that comparison, I think it's extreme, especially considering that Christ's uh, holy church and their law is a reflection of the gospel. And so to say that you um, shouldn't go instead to the gospel is a little bit contradictory because on one hand we have canon law, which does not reflect the gospel. And the other, only other law that the church has 
is reflecting of the gospel. And that's the primary law of the church is the salvation of souls. And so what you have right-wing right -wing Catholics doing is saying something is not right in the church. I really don't like the ambiguity that's coming from the top. And they're looking for sort of a grassroots way to in their church because they don't feel, they, they, they think the church is too polarized. And funny enough is you in America who are labeled as right-wing, but the fact of the matter, a lot of them don't even think that they're being right-wing. They just think that they're being Catholic. And that's how polarized the church is. And that's how it goes. And, and I will concede that, you know, there are very wealthy right-wing Americans who are pumping money into certain bishops to get these these um, narratives out. But the fact of the matter is, is, is this, is the reason most of this is coming out of America is because America is really isolationist. America uh, historically doesn't want anything to do with other nations and they want to focus on the individual. So what happens is you have a Pope in Rome who is saying we should let migrants come unadulteredly into other nations. And he's a lot on globalism and he doesn't seem to be putting enough thought on ecclesiastical matters and he's feeling too political. And the individual in America doesn't like that. You have this fracture right-wing element of the church that is very... I'm, I'm going to be honest, I would prefer not to align myself with them because it's a disaster. And I, I think aligning yourself either right or left in the church is a disaster to begin with. That was a little bit of a ramble, and, and I'm, I'm being a little incoherent if I'm being honest, but most of the people that would be associated with right-wing thinkers in the church, they're not hating the poor. In fact, they're often Christian. Uh, Father Sexton, we're losing we're going what was that very last thing you said? Christian, they are Christian distributionists. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, distributists. And they're very faithful to Rand Um That's all I have to say. I'll, I'll um, go to Father Sexton here. Do you, are you satisfied at all with, with Graham's defense of these people? Uh, because I think it is an easy, an easy label to, to put on people, oh, just right-wing conservatives. But... Uh, I think Graham has, has, has tried to humanize these people, I suppose. Uh, and what do you think? I, I respect that, and I, I appreciate his, uh, his um, compassion for um, right-wing Americans. <laughs> uh, but from the point of view of Europe, uh, the American culture seems to us to be a culture in enormous difficulty. Um, a culture, a, a country that is divided a country that, first of all, has elected uh, a lunatic to be the to, to be the leader, and who comes on day after day making these dangerously nonsensical observations about health and the future—that is the United States as we see it from Europe—and and a very large number of Americans support that, and unfortunately, a large number of, of, of Catholics, Roman Catholics, support that. That that to me is unintelligible. So it is. Um, it, it, uh, I don't need to point out to Americans that they are, they can't even talk to one another, the Republicans, the Democrats, there is a complete impasse there. Um, and, and so if that is affecting the church in the United States, then, um, the church is in big trouble in the U S the Catholic church is in big trouble. I don't think the Catholic church universally is in big trouble. There are big challenges. The Pope is the, is the constant uh, feature of orthodoxy and, and continuation and tradition, therefore. Um, and he is challenging the, 
the, the church of today to be faithful to the gospel. Mm. Caring for migrants is central to what the gospel is about. Um, and some people just don't like that. I mean, Graham commented there, they feel he's too concerned about globalization, but not concerned about ecclesiastical matters. Well, there can't be a contradiction there, so there can't. There has to be a consistency. And the Pope again and again is talking about a consistency. As he says, um, when there's some expression of concern about uh, health or poverty in the world from the United Nations, the same country is supplying mass weapons to, to many countries. And there's a hypocrisy there that has to be challenged. And the Pope is challenging that. Um, but people don't like to be challenged. Graham, do you accept these criticisms of, of your country and its politics? Yikes. Uh, the political system in the United States is, as you can say, at a false deck. And on one hand, it's very easy to say, how could like and their right mind support Donald Trump? But on the other hand, it looks like oh, my connection's unstable. It is unstable. Someone watching Netflix or something? I don't know, probably. Probably streaming a 10-hour movie downstairs. On one hand, it's very easy to say, how could any Catholic in their right mind support someone like Donald Trump? And on the other hand, you have someone saying, how could any Catholic in their right mind support someone like Clinton, who supports the unadulterated abortion of fetuses? So that's the problem of the false dichotomy. And in reality, what happens is if you're a Catholic and you're voting for one or the other of these two people, you know, your conscience is in big trouble. I mean, supporting one guy who's uh, an egotistical narcissist or another lady who wants to universalize everything and, and supports you wanting to, you know, kill your child in the womb. On that one, on, on the Clinton-Trump uh, thing, Father Sexton, what is a Catholic supposed to do when given that choice? Well, first of all, that's three years ago. Okay, Clinton uh, lost the election and... Um, Trump won the election by a narrow margin. Um, a huge number of Americans didn't support it. I have no particular support for, for Hillary Clinton myself whatsoever. Abortion is wrong. It's not a right, it's wrong. Um, but it's one issue of, of many issues. And you can't just say, I'm against abortion, but I'm in favor of capital punishment, and I'm in favor of ignoring migrants, and I'm in favor of not wondering too much about the poor. Mm. Uh, I mean, it's just crazy, so it is. Uh, of course abortion is wrong, and I'm totally opposed to it myself. Um, and every Catholic uh, would be expected to, to be opposed to it. But you can't uh, reduce Catholicism and Catholic morality to one issue. Um, but to be talking about three years ago mm. is, is crazy. We have to talk about the future. And we're, unfortunately, you're, you're dealing with the a lethal situation in the United States, so we are at the moment, that's affecting world peace, world justice, uh, world compassion, uh, and the Pope is trying to stand for all of those things, peace, compassion, and, and justice for, for the poor. So would you say Trump and, and uh, the Pope are like polar opposites or something? I would say absolutely, yeah. Brian, I, would you agree with that? I, I think there's some differences they could work out. <laughs> well, good, good man yourself, Graham, but uh, I can't say I agree with you there. Um, but I, I, I pray for the American people and for their future. I, I, um, I, I just don't know how things will turn out. I mean, even as, as things stand at the moment, 
were going through hell in the in New York uh, and in other countries, and yet you have people on the streets protesting that they that the shutdown should be reduced, and and Trump is supporting that. I mean, it's just unbelievable. Um, it's just unbelievable. So it is from this point. Well, of the president himself aside, we want to talk about the future. And I'm, yes, regarding Clinton and Trump was three years ago. If you want to talk about the future from the American perspective, I couldn't tell you a thing about European politics besides I don't like labor. Um, let's look at it right now. So we've got Joe Biden and Donald Trump as the nominees for each party. Biden is blatantly pro-choice. He was denied Holy Communion at a church for being openly pro-choice. Bernie Sanders says in a town hall that to be a Democrat is to be pro-choice and you can't have one without the other. That's the future of the Democratic Party in America. So we should use what would normally be our natural inclinations as a human being to decide what is the most important issue right now. You were standing on a sidewalk. who was a uh, minority who was discriminated against and he was also homeless and he didn't have hair. And the, on the other side of you was a person who had just been stabbed in the neck and was dying. Who can you reasonably say you would tend to first, you know? I mean, like I would tend to the man who was stabbed in the neck as opposed to the homeless person who was racially discriminated against and didn't have good health care. I would tend to the man who had been stabbed in the neck and then I would worry about the homeless person. And if we're being honest with one another, I bet the homeless person would probably get up and go defend the man who had been stabbed in the neck. So that's why people in America are willing to sacrifice their conscience to vote for a president who is pro-life, even though he supports the death penalty, even though he is a narcissistic, egotistical lunatic. And that's why they're not willing to compromise their conscience to vote for a Democrat, because what you're doing is in further legislation to kill children. And that's the Catholic, that's the Catholic of the, of the um, political party false dichotomy in America. Uh, Father Sexton, do you accept Graham's analogy there with the man on the street who's just been stabbed in the neck? No, not particularly. No, I, um, I, we probably should end this fairly soon now, by the way, Fergus. Um, Getting late. Tonight. But you cannot reduce um, the Catholic situation to one issue, the abortion issue, which, as I've said before, abortion is wrong. Um, of course it's wrong because it's the killing of a human being. Um, but you cannot reduce um, the, the future to one issue and, and ignore all the other major issues of ignoring the rights of human beings, the rights of migrants, the rights of young people, the rights of, of, uh, of married couples, the rights of people in trouble, um, like the homeless, um, and which is going on in the United States. Now, as I say, it's not only the United States, these problems are in other countries too. But to reduce morality to one issue is crazy. And, um, and that's very unhealthy. And unfortunately, um, I have the impression that, that uh, listening and reading, uh, as I do a good deal about American politics, um, that it's a very polarized society um, that is, is black and white. And unfortunately, it's a very unreflective society that comes across to, to me here in Ireland and to a lot of us in Europe. And some of my best friends are Americans. So they are, and they are appalled at what's going on in their own country and faithful Catholics as they are. Mm. So I wish them well. 
but I don't hold much hope at the moment. Um, I'm, uh, I'm, 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 I don't know enough about, about politics to ever to read the future. Um, you cannot reduce the gospel to one issue. And I'm afraid that's what a lot of right-wingers do, not only in the United States, but here in Europe as well. Father Sexton, I have one question for you uh, in a minute, but I do want to just ask Graeme quickly before we, we finish that. Um, Graeme, we've heard from Father Sexton um, quite an accurate uh, depiction of how we see America in Europe as Europeans or as Irish people or whatever. I think a lot of what he said is exactly uh, how we view the states, right? So can you just try and paint a picture of how uh, do Americans and I suppose there are two sides to America and, and many more sides than two. But can you try and paint some picture of how Americans see uh, Europe and what's going on there? Jeez, I tell you what, um, America is such an anomaly that it's no wonder that the rest of the, um, is really appalled by what's going on here in America. And it's, it's almost like a weird science experiment. Um, and that's really how it is for people even in America. Most people in America couldn't tell you a significant thing about Europe. I'm serious. I think that's true. Most people, a lot of people probably couldn't even point out to Croatia on a map. Most people probably couldn't even point out France on a map. I've seen reporters go in the streets and hold microphones to people's faces, say, hey, tell me where France is on this map and you can win an iPhone. And they can't do it. They can't do it. Um, fortunately, however, unfortunately, that's a result of secularism and, and ignorance. Um, and those in Europe. But the thing about Europe is most Europeans historically couldn't have afforded to be unaware of what's going on. Uh, I'm talking post-enlightenment here, not pre-enlightenment. Most pre-enlightenment people were just futile and they did their job. But most Europeans post-enlightenment couldn't afford to not know. Or either it, it could be their head on the block next, you know. And post-enlightenment, things were changing so quickly that humans had to be on their feet and they had to understand what was going on. And there's so much confusion. Um, and you even see remnants of the Holy Roman Empire in terms of the regional differences being in political parties today. How Americans view Europe? Um, they don't. They don't. They don't. That's, that's uh, I can tell you, I view Europe entered, um Culturally, uh, I see Europe as coming off of the bosom of Holy Mother Church, which is frightening. Um, uh, I'm really interested to see how Brexit plays out in the next coming years, as there is no longer uh, an unadulterated flood of migrants um, in, in English society. Um, that's interesting. And I'm interested to see um, if the rest of the European Union exit referendum uh, go in Europe. I'm interested to see how that plays out. And I'm interested to see how the European Union reacts to most of these countries getting uh, more and more popular movements to leave the European Union. I'm curious how they're going to react to that. Father Sexton, can you uh, paint any picture of that, uh, the, specifically regarding the EU and people's uh, loyalty to that. Do you foresee further breakup, or are you confident that that Europe will prevail uh, united, to, in, despite the UK leaving? Obviously, well, the UK is just one part of of the European Union, and uh, is itself a very divided society as well. 
So, uh, and there are many people in the UK are appalled at their leaving the European Union, as will become increasingly obvious. It's, it's not fully left yet. Um, and technically it's left. They're not in a situation to know where they stand. So the UK is in a mess. Um, there are one or two other rumbles going on in certain countries, but I think the European Union will stand. I hope it does. Um, if from a political point of view, a religious point of view, there isn't any common viewpoint in the European Union, so there isn't. So it's a political issue. It's, um, and it's an issue of putting together um, different countries. Uh, it's, a, it's an issue for the world. I mean, in dealing with this health crisis, it's an issue of putting together. Um, but the American isolationist thing, which Trump has championed, um, is doing great damage to the to the world order, I think, and um, God knows where that will will lead us. Um, I, I pray for. I mean, I'm my appall is not so much that Trump is there because I think he's a lunatic, but my appall is that a, a certain number of of people of the United States support him and think he is supportable. That's what what appalls me about American situation. But the European Union, I think, will hold. Father Sexton, I think I'll give the last word to you here uh, and allow you to go to bed. Um, but, uh, <laughs> thanks a million for staying up, Graham. And okay, I don't know what I'm on, uh, really. But I, I do want to ask you, how, how should we move forward? Graham and I are, are young men uh, living in a precarious world. And, uh, and I don't know anything about Graham's background, not, not much about yours either. I mean, what do you guys do? We are both students uh, in Alabama. Uh, in the heart of the America that you, I suppose, criticize, I think it's fair to say. And, and most people around us would be uh, adamant supporters of that man who you deplore. And that's not all, that's not what our life revolves around. But I, I'm just, I'm half joking there. Would yeah. do you, do you have any nugget of, of wisdom to leave us with uh, as we, obviously in the coronavirus and all that kind of stuff, have you any... How is it affecting your region? How is it affecting your region? Well, I'm in South Carolina and I'm staying with my girlfriend's family and uh, not a lot is going on, but it's it's very peaceful. People are still driving around the place and getting their takeaway food and going to Walmart and, and things. You can't sit in a restaurant, but um, it is pretty... I would say life is reasonably normal. I, Graham, so you've, no uh, lock, you've no lockdown? It's kind of locked down, but it's not really. Like The schools aren't in session and or the, the schools aren't meeting and the the businesses many of them are still open uh, doing drive through instead of instead of uh, sit in eating you know what i mean so for example a coffee shop i wouldn't call it essential but coffee shops are still serving people yeah. to do takeaway you know well they're not essential they're crazy it's crazy i'm afraid yeah. there's started- a cupcake shop down the street where i live and it's considered an essential business by the <laughs> cupcake yeah. shop that's the state of things. Yeah, yeah, it's essential for the people uh, that run it, maybe. But uh, exactly. Yeah. My nugget. I, I mean, I've no. Um, I, I, what's your connection with the O'Rourke's, by the way? I, I, you're Fergus Murphy. Well, ah, oh, you're 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 blowing my cover here. So the reason I have Murphy in the name, my name is O'Rourke, but I have Murphy to separate a little bit from the family. Uh, okay okay particularly the media element of it you look a bit like sean all right so yeah so sean is my brother i I want to basically have my own name uh, in the media world 
And uh, okay, I have, I, okay, I respect that. That's fine. Yeah. A nugget of wisdom is you just have to be men of integrity. I think you have to be true to yourself. Um, you have to challenge the common view um, that uh, tries to deal in slogans and in, um, in 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 this kind of language now that new language of fake news that trivializes reality. I, I think you just young people, you are the, obviously are the future in a way. I'm I'm ancient goods now. So, but you guys are the future of hope and integrity, um, and just don't be dogmatic in the sense of ignoring what others are saying. I mean, I respect the people you deal with, but be true to your heart there. Um, but don't be a self righteous prig <laughs> <Get it? laughs> that's good advice there father thanks for that <laughs> did you tell that to the by the way did you say that to the students at Kentaga 30 years I ago i tried but i mean i don't know how the hell they listen you know okay <laughs> good stuff well thanks a million yeah, good um, to talk to you anyway you too sleep well <laughs> for the invitation yeah again and graham goodbye all the best to you i'm gonna put Thank an end to this here Graham, thank you so much. And happy birthday. Father Sexton, it's Graham's birthday. So oh, happy uh, birthday, Graham. He's 19 today. 19. Oh, wonderful. <laughs> right, Slon and Ish. Slon All of us, Slon, 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 Tommy. You are listening to the Logos broadcast with Fergus James Murphy.